welcome to How We Got Here. I'm Rachel DePompa. Okay, history nerds and buffs, this one is for you. Even if you aren't, I think you're really gonna like this. It's a podcast about Virginia's rich history told one week at a time. We go out of order, showing you a glimpse of a week throughout time. But follow along because our stories often weave together in the weirdest ways. Think of it like a discussion about what happened this week in Richmond history and beyond. Great little stories from across Virginia. You'll hear new details about events you may already know something about, but we're also digging deep into our archives to find stories you may remember from years past. We'll bring you updates. I'm an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. I'm a podcast lover, I'm gonna admit it. It's all I listen to when I'm driving home, to and from work. Radio, I don't even know what songs they play anymore. So I'm all in for bringing you engaging stories. Plus, I am a firm believer we can learn a lot about our history, our nature, and our future by looking back into our past. This week, we're turning the pages of history, looking back at June 3rd through June 9th. And we're going way back, 155 years to be exact, to the times of the Civil War raging in RVA's backyard. On June 3rd, 1864, Union troops launched a massive assault on the Confederate position of Cold Harbor. The thinking was, if we can push Robert E. Lee right into the Chickahominy River, crack his lines, Richmond's exposed, game over. That's Mike Gorman. He's been a historian for the Richmond National Battlefield Park since 2003. This is my hometown. Sort of what uh, made me interested in the Civil War was you know, being surrounded by it all the time, but kind of low information around here. Uh, so it was sort of, I want to find out what's going on. So it sort of pointed me on the path to becoming a real geek, but a historian of the Civil War. We caught up with him at historic Tredegar Ironworks, a landmark. It has Civil War history lodged between each brick used to build it. If you ever come to Richmond, it's a must-see. But as for Mike, he oozes knowledge. He's a Civil War encyclopedia on two legs. But that's okay. I get, I, get, I get paid for my geekery, unlike most, so that's a good thing. And he is so well-versed on June 3rd, 1864. Cold Harbor is about 10 miles as the crow flies northeast of Richmond. It's not a harbor. It doesn't have anything to do with temperature or water. It refers to a tavern by the roadside where you as a traveler could sleep for the night, harbor yourself. But there wasn't an innkeeper or traditional tavern hospitality, so it was a cold harbor. And that's all it was, just a tavern at a crossroads. But when the battle started, it didn't really go as planned for the Union. What was supposed to happen was the entire Army of the Potomac plus the 18th Corps of the Army of the James. Five Union Corps were supposed to go forward in a massive charge, would have been the largest charge of the war, together at the same time at 4.30 in the morning. That was the orders from Grant. Yes, that Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, the top general for the Union Army. What did happen was that at 4.30 in the morning, some divisions and brigades were still asleep. You have single regiments moving out or single brigades moving out. Nobody's on their flanks. So instead of only having one gun on you, 
person directly in front of you that can fire at you. Now those units that move forward are just becoming bullet magnets. It's horrifying. For the soldiers that were in those lead units, it was absolutely hell on earth. The result on June 3rd alone, 5,000 dead Union soldiers. Think about that. That many Confederate soldiers died during the Cold Harbor campaign over the span of two weeks. So this breakdown of unity of attack causes the lead elements of this attack that do move forward to suffer huge, staggering casualties. In one unit alone, admittedly it was a fresh unit, they suffered over 500 casualties in one unit. That's incredible. Even though the Confederates were entrenched and well defended, they were in a pretty vulnerable spot. You've got the Confederates backed up to the Chickahominy River, which any Richmonder knows is a mile-wide swamp. It's not a river. It's, even calling it a river is an insult to rivers. Really think about that. It, it's huge. It's a massive military obstacle. If, if Lee's army breaks anywhere along that line, it's over. Grant stretched the Confederates seven miles, like a rubber band being pulled ever tighter. So that line is ever thinner. So if there's any coordinated assault that can hit that line, it's going to break. I don't care if you've got Navy SEALs in these trenches. You know, you're still a very thin line. And that's the idea. And it was an incredible failure. Of the five Union Corps that were ordered to attack, being generous here, only about two and a half did anything resembling an attack. That is a spectacular breakdown. So what happened here? How did it go so wrong for the Union? These are good and capable seasoned commanders that are given an order that is unambiguous. Attack at 4.30 in the morning and reconnoiter your lines. You can imagine these, these things that should take place, but they don't seem to have. And I can't really account for that, except to say that this army has been fighting and moving and suffering every day for a month. By the time they arrived at Cold Harbor, they'd already lost over 50,000 men. 50,000 men. Let that sink in. It's stunning. If that happened today in a month in the U.S. Army, we lost 50,000 men in that month, we would correctly say this army is broken and we need to pull back, we need to stop. But instead, the push was on. So Grant gives the order. None of the commanders seem to have reconnoitered their lines and none of them really seemed to make much of an effort to make the kind of attack that would succeed. Thousands of men dead and dying in the fields northeast of Richmond. A ceasefire is agreed to on June 7th. The need for the ceasefire is to bury the dead. You can, well, using your imagination, it doesn't have to be too fine a point here, but it's the summer, they're very close to each other, and there are a lot of dead men out in the field. This is horrifying. The battle proved to be Lee's last major field victory in the entire Civil War. It certainly was the last of the army versus army, large Civil War battles. Cold Harbor is really, really it. You're not going to see it again. After the disaster, General Grant changed his strategy. His next target, Petersburg. And so those initial assaults at Petersburg, while they do take some of the outer forts of Petersburg, are not the crash through, take Petersburg and make Richmond untenable kind of victories that Grant was expecting. And so that gave Lee time to get down to Petersburg, garrison the city, and here we go. A siege takes hold for nine months. But that's a story for next week in Episode 2.
From the Civil War to the American Revolution, the night of June 3, 1781, marked the great ride of Captain Jack Jewett, the Paul Revere of the South. It's an incredible story, taught in Virginia's textbooks, but little known outside our Commonwealth. In the weeks before, Virginia's government fled Richmond because of the invading General Lord Charles Cornwallis. Governor Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and other notorious rebels hid at Monticello and in Charlottesville. Cornwallis sent trusted British officer Colonel Bannister Tarleton, known as Bloody Tarleton, to surprise and capture Virginia's legislature. You know he's named Bloody Tarleton for a reason. Also, there's this really great Star Wars vibe going on here. Lords, rebels, British. I digress. Tarleton and his men stopped at Cuckoo Tavern in Louisa County, Virginia. Luckily, Captain Jack Jewett was there, quickly realizing where the British were heading and why. So began Jewett's dead of night dash, some 40 miles through the backwoods of Virginia. Just as the sun came up on June 4, 1781, Jewett arrived at Monticello, warned Jefferson, and continued on to Charlottesville, warning the rest of the leaders of the American Rebellion from Virginia. Most legislators escaped, voting to reconvene and meet up on June 7th in Stanton. Later that month, a grateful Virginia General Assembly voted to reward Jewett's heroism with a brace of silver-mounted pistols and a jeweled sword. I wonder where that is today. No idea. Somebody out there has to know. Captain Jack Jewett's ride is not well known outside what is now the Commonwealth of Virginia. But some of the men he saved that night from the British hangman went on to sign their names on the Declaration of Independence. One of the men who got away that day was Patrick Henry. And on June 6, 1799, 18 years after Jewett's ride, the founding father died at Red Hill Plantation in Charlotte County, Virginia, just south of Lynchburg. It was one of the many properties he owned after he grew up in Hanover County. Patrick Henry lived in 12 places during his 63 years on this earth. He had a friend who said that he, uh, uh, that he changed houses as easily as some people changed their underwear. That's the voice of John Kukla, a historian from the Midwest who now lives in RVA. I've been doing Virginia history for like forever. To be exact, he's been studying it for half a century. He worked at the Library of Virginia for nearly 20 years in the 1970s and 80s. He's an expert on Patrick Henry. Kukla worked at the Red Hill Plantation for seven years, and he even wrote a biography that was published in 2017 called Patrick Henry, Champion of Liberty. Back to Henry's final days. He contracted malaria earlier in life, but that wasn't what killed him. Henry was at Red Hill and uh, he'd been ill. His physician came down from Lynchburg and diagnosed him as having essentially an intestinal blockage. It has a real medical name, but I could not tell you how to pronounce it. We'll just say he couldn't go. The cure for it at that time was basically try to open the blockage 
and to do that they needed something that was heavy and that would go through the intestines like liquid mercury and of course so Henry took a vial of and swallowed a vial of liquid mercury. That's right he willingly drank liquid mercury people. It sounds about as painful as we all can imagine. And the doctor said, you know, this will either cure you or it won't. And uh, it did not pass through. And he died basically of, of the complications of this uh, condition. And then of the immediate cause would have been mercury poisoning. His doctor basically poisoned him. But just remember, it was 1799. I had one nurse visiting um, when I was at Red Hill who told me that that was still an accepted technique, except nowadays you could put it in plastic. Uh, and, uh, you know, okay. No thanks. Meanwhile, Henry is best known for his fiery rhetoric inside a Richmond church that still stands today, St. John's Church on East Broad Street. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. That was recorded inside St. John's Church at one of their weekly reenactments. The next gale that blows from the north shall bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. They do this all summer long. You should really check this out. All right, back to our story. Henry was elected as a delegate for Hanover County at the Second Virginia Convention, which met at the church in the spring of 1775. He presented resolutions to raise a militia and defend Virginia from the British. But his opponents urged caution and patience until the Crown replied to their latest petition for reconciliation. Henry rather famously said their petitions have been spurned. As the speech is reconstructed, um, you know, one of the things that he says is the next gale from the north will bring the clash of resounding arms. And uh, of course, you know, four, four or five weeks later, blood is shed at Lexington and Concord. Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! So if we didn't learn a thing about liberty from Patrick Henry when he died June 6, 1799, he did teach us a thing or two about death. Liquid mercury will kill you. Moving now to the 20th century, June 6th is the date that the country remembers, not just Virginia, but the small town of Bedford knows that day all too well. June 6th, 1944, D-Day. Thirty-two hundred people lived in Bedford at the time. Nineteen of them died June 6th, some before they reached French soil. Bedford suffered the most men killed per capita that fateful day. Those men now remembered as the Bedford Boys. You didn't know where any bullet was coming from, where any shell was coming from, what direction aimed at who or nothing. You only knew that you could be the subject that it was seeking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's Mills Hobbs, a Roanoke man who passed away in 2014. At the time of that interview, he was one of the few surviving members of Company A, 115th Infantry of the 29th Division. 
the Bedford Boys were Company A, 116th Infantry of the 29th. Their sacrifice is one of the reasons why the National D-Day Memorial stands in Bedford today. I was there for its debut. It was my first job as a journalist. I was working in a small market in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and it was one of the most emotional moments of my career. Think about it, meeting face to face with heroes who survived D-Day. Most of us will never know what that's like. And if that wasn't enough, another pivotal moment was when the French ambassador at the time stood up and thanked Americans for fighting with them. France does not forget, and I want to express my country's profound gratitude to all the veterans that risked their lives in that great battle. The memorial we are inaugurating today is a well-deserved tribute to the young men and women who fought in Normandy. Thanks to them, the ideals upon which our two nations have been founded remain the solid basis of our societies. It's a beautiful tribute and well worth a trip. We were just like brothers. We, we would stand up for one another no matter what. Finally, we're going back into the NBC 12 archives and catching up with the little boy we first introduced you to on the air 10 years ago. It was June 3rd, 2009 at Lee Hill Park in Spotsylvania County. A Little League game was underway when storms forced the players off the field. Parents and coaches waiting for the storm to pass. Two little boys started throwing a ball back and forth when the unthinkable happened. I didn't see the initial strike. I just saw our kids laying on the on the field. Lightning struck the two boys. Two nurses who happened to be at this game, they started CPR immediately. 12-year-old Clau Gross Matos did not survive. 11-year-old Jonathan Colson miraculously lived. We spoke to Colson and his family a few months after the strike. The little boy's life forever changed. You can hear it in his speech patterns. I know I got hurt because I was in the hospital, but I didn't know why. He wasn't able to talk at first. He had to learn how to rewalk again. It's unbelievable. I can't believe 10 years has already passed. Jonathan Colson is now 21 years old. We caught up with him over Skype at Germana Community College. What do you remember? I don't really have many memories about like what exactly happened that day. I think I remember leaving for school and then us going to the baseball game. And that's really where it ends for me. I I don't like I really don't remember playing catch or anything like that. Where did it hit you? It entered through um, the left side of my head and it went all through my body and kind of separated towards my legs. So between the middle toe and the big toe of both my feet, like I had, I had marks there. It's been a long road of recovery. 
Through it all, Colson has not forgotten about his friend. Such an upbeat guy, such a such a good friend. He was great to talk to. We always we would always play catch before practices, like as the little warm up. Was he your go-to kind of to play catch before the games? And yeah, he was. Once once me and him became friends, every single time at practice or anything, we were inseparable. When we first talked to Jonathan back in 2009, he had some pretty big aspirations for his future. Have 14 kids. Wow. Go to Australia. Yeah, that was the plan, but not really anymore. <laughs> Things change. Yeah, for sure. What's the plan now? I recently just got accepted to VCU for the fall. So what I'm going to do is when I'm when I'm there, I'm going to go for my bachelor's in exercise science. After I graduate from there, I'm going to get into their physical therapy program because I want to I want to get my doctorates in physical therapy. That's my end goal. He says his new path in life is thanks to those who helped him recover. I just remember my physical therapists were amazing. They made every single physical therapy not, not really seem like work. They made it seem like an experience. The way I think is if I can, if I can grow up and make it that amazing for another kid, I'll feel, I'll feel like I gave back. Jonathan Colson is that one, that one in a million to survive a lightning strike. Thank you for listening to NBC 12's very first episode of How We Got Here. This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. I want to give a special shout out to NBC 12's digital director, Kate Albright. She came up with this idea and let me run with it. And a huge thank you to executive producer Colton Weekly, who literally trekked around Virginia to research these stories. For their time, we want to thank Jonathan Colson, Mike Gorman, and John Kukla, as well as St. John's Church for letting us use sound from its reenactment. And you know that awesome logo? That was made by Tina Rodriguez. We love it. If you like learning about our home and surrounding area, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. Next week on Episode 2. It's not a good day, June 15th, for the Confederates. The Siege of Petersburg, a landmark decision for love. We've got bats versus uh, rifle. Not good odds. And a terrifying day on a baseball field. That's next week in Episode 2. And please don't forget to rate and review this podcast so others will find it. <laughs> <laughs>